Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge and I'm sitting in for Mary today who's out on vacation. Um, please feel free to call in at any stage during um, this show today. Um, today we have Robert Whitaker. Um, hi, Robert. Hello, uh, Mark. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Nice to be here. Um, so, um, Bob is the author of four books. His first, Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill, um, was very critically, well critically acclaimed um, and been named by Discover Magazine as one of the best science books of 2002. Um, the second, The Mapmaker's Wife, True Tale of Love, Murder, and Survival on the Amazon, um, was named by the American Library Association as one of the best biographies of 2004 and has been translated into eight languages. Um, the most recent book, there's been a number of books in between, um, and um, but his most recent book was Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America, which was published um, in the spring of 2010. Um, so I first saw Bob at a um, conference I attended in New York um, and uh, called the INTAR conference um, and um, was very excited to um, read this book. And I've got to say, I was hoping to read this book and find lots to criticize and um, feel like I, I feel like I know a lot about psychiatric medications and the treatment of um, mentally ill um, people. And um, and thought that I'd be able to be a you know good critique of um, good critic of this book, and I had challenged. I was challenged. It was a very challenging book. It, it was um, difficult in part to read. It was also very exciting. I felt like I was having secret conversations with all of my best mentors over the past few decades, who were suddenly telling me things they always wanted me to say. They always wanted to tell me, but were too inhibited to really say because of the psychiatric profession discourse that we find ourselves in. Um, so it's a real honor to talk to you, Bob. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. It's an honor and pleasure to be on the show. Well, tell us a little bit about what motivated, tell us a bit about your book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and what motivated you to write it. Yeah, Anatomy of an Epidemic starts with a, a, a question and sort of a, an outlining of a medical mystery, and, and here it is. You know, we in American society, and really in Western countries as well, have this belief that uh, Thorazine, the first uh, psychotropic drug, comes into asylum medicine in 1955, and that that kicked off a psychopharmacological revolution, this great advance in care of the mentally ill. And really the sense is that before that time, a psychiatry lacked treatments to prevent people from becoming chronically ill, and today, thanks to these medications, we now have effective therapies for preventing chronicity. Right. And this, the idea of this revolution is generally in history books is that it unfolded in two steps. We've got Thorazine, the first generation of psychiatric drugs. Prozac arrives in, 1950, in 1988. That's the, sec, the first of the second generation drugs, and that's a, a second step forward. So that's our common belief system, and it, it drives our care. But what I did as a starting point for this book is look at this. What are, what is, what are the number of people uh, receiving government disability or under government care due to a mental illness? 
And theoretically, you would think that if you have this great advance in medical treatments, is that the disability rate on a per capita basis should go down over that time, should, should go down as that revolution unfolds. And what you, what you find when you do that is that the opposite occurs. And then, in fact, we're getting these rising disability rates ever since 1955. And in particular, we've got this astonishing rise in the number of people on government disability due to mental illness in the past 20 years since Prozac's arrival. So, for example, in 1988, there were roughly 1.25 million adult Americans on government disability that, that they received either SSI or SSDI due to a mental illness. And today we have 4 million people. In other words, during this time when we've really embraced this paradigm of care, the number of disabled mentally ill has tripled. The number of people going on every day now is 850 people, new people per day. Once people go on, very few come off to go back to work, etc. So at the very least, you have this puzzle. We have a societal belief in this great advance in medical care, and yet as we have embraced the use of those medications, we're seeing an astonishing rise in disability rates. And that raises a basic scientific question. Is it possible that this paradigm of care is, for some odd reason, fueling this disability, this rise in disability, this epidemic of disabling mental illness? And once you raise that, and that's the, the beginning of the book, is that question. And in order to investigate that question, you now have to look at, well, how do medications affect the long-term course of, of major disorders? How do they affect the long-term course of schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder? And what you want to see in that outcomes data is, uh, do, the, do the medications help people become less symptomatic over time? Do they help people go back to work, stay well, enjoy lives, in other words, function well or not? And then that's the... Uh, so that's the starting point, and that's what I, I sought to do in the book, is look at how the medications affect long-term course of disorders. Yeah, I mean, one, um, it's an amazing point, and the figures that you have around the uh, disability rates really are startling. Um, and um, you base a lot of the question upon, of, of the efficacy of drugs on the um, disability rates. It's an interesting proxy to use because, in my experience, it's not necessarily people with any particular diagnosis that, um, or even the, the, the people, let me phrase that. In my experience, it's not necessarily people with diagnoses of severe mental illness who end up on disability. It's not people with schizophrenia. It's not people with um, marked bipolar disorder. Um, it's often people with more um, depressive diagnoses, anxiety disorders, um, and um, they sort of, and often with some comorbid drug dependency issues, um, and it doesn't seem to correlate very well with either particular type of diagnosis, as far as I can tell, um, or what medications are um, prescribed, um, which I suppose is your point. You know, it's not necessarily saying that these drugs don't do anything, but they're not really seeming to impact um, the functioning of a society. And there's been a marked increase in the prescribing, but not a, but it hasn't impacted the overall functioning of um, people generally in society. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think there's two things in response to what you've just said. One of the real mysteries to investigate uh, in terms of just looking at the disability numbers is Disability used to be seen with people with psychotic disorders, okay, mm -hmm. in the society, and whether, you know, these were the people who really couldn't function well. And people with affective disorders, 
meaning depression, anxiety, or even really to an extent bipolar disorder, actually were seen as pretty able to able to function pretty well long term, and yeah. really I'm going back say 15, 20 years, and weren't in need of disability. And if you look at what is really stirring the growth. Uh, or the rise in the number of people on disability, it is the dis- affective disorders. It's people with diagnoses, as you say, with depression, anxiety, bipolar. And in the past, in the, say, prior to 1990, there just weren't many people with those diagnoses showing up on the disability, uh, you know, roles. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you're talking about is uh, just in a, a sort of bottom line, big picture sense is, you know, as a society, of course, as we spend a lot of money and our spending on mental disorders has soared in the United States, you do expect some sort of return. And by the return might be some sort of decrease in the morbidity or the mortality, the functionality of people so treated. And at the very first, at the very least, the disability numbers tell, tell us as a society that this paradigm of care really isn't working that well for us as a society because we're spending ever more. People are ending up long-term on these lists. We're also seeing this extraordinary surge of young people, age 18, going right on to the adult disability roles and now really set up for a life as a mental patient. And so regardless of whether how the medications may or may not be contributing to that, it tells you that big picture-wise, we need to do something different. Maybe yeah. whatever it might be, and maybe it means to be, we can keep on using the meds just as we are now, but we got to do something different as well. But we've got to change our focus so that we're talking about people able to work and not needing up on disability roles. That's from the position of society as a whole. But then you also have this other question, and that I, that I, that you can dig into, and I do dig into in this book, and that is, if you start looking long-term in terms of how medications affect, at least in, in some ways contribute to the sense of are people less symptomatic thanks to the medications long-term or are they more symptomatic for some reason? Is there a possibility that you can take someone with a milder disorder, let's say they come in with a milder bout of depression, and some, some a small percentage of those people might have a bad reaction to the antidepressant, become manic, and next thing you know, they're in the bipolar category. Do we have that iatrogenic effect? And then I think the other thing you, you want to investigate long-term, and this, uh, I think, does go to uh, the ability to function, are there with some of the meds, and especially also if you get on these med cocktails, is there long-term cognitive decline? Is there some sort of physical problems that uh, show up as well? So it's this full-bodied look at how medications affect uh, lives over the long term. Yeah, I mean, you speak about the, uh, the book is obviously an anatomy of an epidemic. And um, could you say something about the increasing rates of diagnosis as well as the increased rates of pres- um, prescriptions for um, psychotropic medications that, um, that you lay out in the book? Well, I think one thing, just let's go just the amount of the money spent on yeah. psychiatric medications. In 1980s, and part of this is because the medications are more expensive today than they were in 1987. Maybe many of them at this time were, you know, off patent. But anyway, I think it's in 1987, if I can remember this right, we spent as a country about $800 million in psychotropic medications. That's 1987. Today we are um, spending more than $40 billion a year on psychotropic medications. So this is an extraordinary increase in spending on these drugs. That's the first thing. And then, of course, there's also been this extraordinary expansion of diagnostics. Um, if we go back, maybe even I'd say into 1980, 
the percentage of people that were said to be bipolar or manic depressive at that time, well, you know, it, it was considered a fairly rare disorder. The latest, the latest study story is that one in 40 adult Americans now is bipolar, so it's mm -hmm. a very common thing. Now, how did we move from a rare disorder? And if you go back far enough with manic depressive, it's like, you know, one in 5,000 or something like that. Right. But anyway, how do we get this big increase? Well, part of it is a change in diagnostic boundaries. It used to be to get a manic depressive diagnosis, you had to be hospitalized for depression, and you had to have a hospitalization for mania. So you, mm -hmm. you had to have the severity of both poles of, of, of the illness. Now you can get a bipolar diagnosis and, and never been hospitalized for either, and your, quote, m hypomanic episode can be as short as, you know, a few days. And while there is a bit of a react there's a slight reaction to that. You know, there, I mean, I certainly... Um, see a lot of people who come to me with diagnoses of bipolar that they've uh, received from physicians who've seen them for one session, not consulted with anybody in their family, not seen them over time, not done a drug test to see whether they've been doing stimulants or benzodiazepines, not paid attention to the development in their life and that they're in adolescence and having a hard time or not sleeping, and they've been on a medication for a very long time, and it's... and uh, and. There is a little bit of a reaction. People are thinking, come on, can we really be seeing having one in 40 people with a bipolar disorder or even higher? Some estimates are even, even higher. Yes, um, I've even I seen one in 20. I mean, yes. it just keeps going higher and higher. Um, but, but still the dominant discourse is that these are very common disorders and there's a march almost as a reaction to stigma to really diagnose and treat and think of all the people that you're missing. We'll come back after a short break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Listen for the right turn with J.J. O'Malley. It's an insider's look at America's fastest-growing motorsports series, the Grand Am Rolex Sports Car Series, presented by Crown Royal Cask Number 16. You'll hear about what happened last weekend and get a preview of what's coming up next. From the Rolex 24 at Daytona, through Watkins Glen International, Mid-Ohio, Laguna Seca, right up to the championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. The Right Turn with J.J. O'Malley, broadcast live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, welcome back. It's Mark Green sitting in for Mary Woods with Bob Whitaker, author of Anatomy of an Epidemic. Great book, really challenging, um, which uh, discusses the epidemic of diagnosis of mental illness and some really challenges us to think differently about um, the use of medications and alternatives to medications um, and starts with a, a, a straightforward look at the fact that rates of disability have increased markedly over the last few years concurrent with the rise of medications, and doesn't that make us think that there's something up? So, Bob, just before the break, we were talking about bipolarity and um, its overdiagnosis, and I was saying, on the one hand, uh, overdiagnosis or increased diagnosis has been justified as a reaction to some stigmatization of people with mental illness, um, and that there are so many people with uh, bipolar disorder or some other major mental illness who were untreated and unrecognized. Um, some of the problems with that has been that there's been an over-reliance on medications and this massive expansion of diagnosis of bipolarity, uh, which leaves um, anyone seemingly prone to uh, receiving that diagnosis when they uh, enter an office. Um, so tell me some of the uh, things you've seen around uh, and, and that you write around about the overdiagnosis of bipolar disorder, and perhaps particularly emotion, uh, emotive, is the case of bipolar diagnosis in children. Yeah, I think this is really important for our society to understand what's happened here. By the way, just as a bit of an aside, when I was doing the book, I went on to these websites where you can take a little test to see if you should go to see a, a you know, if, if you need to go see a doctor to see that you might be bipolar. Uh-huh. I took the test, and it told me I did need to get to a doctor in a hurry, so... I guess I have some of those symptoms. <laughs> the right. point is, if you take the test, virtually everyone is told yeah, because those tests are put up by drug companies, etc. Right. Here's and here's this really is a, there's a point to this story. So how did we go from a rare disorder to a common disorder? And you said, well, maybe it's because, you know, the sense was it used to be undiagnosed and unrecognized, and we're getting rid of the stigma, bringing more people into treatment. Well, I think one of the things that in fact is happening, it's a market expansion story. So you have pharmaceutical companies that, that, you know, frankly want to do, want to increase the number of people taking their medications. And especially once the atypical antipsychotics came in in the early to mid-1990s, they wanted to expand use of those drugs beyond just the schizophrenia population, the psychotic population. They wanted to start putting them into the bipolar uh, population. So you do have this factor going on. You have drug companies paying doctors, psychiatrists at big medical schools 
to serve as consultants, advisors on speaker boards, etc. And they give them grants. And one of the things, the purposes of that uh, affiliation association is for those doctors to expand the market for them. So they, they issue new diagnostic guidelines, and next thing you know, you don't have to be that emotionally up and down to get a bipolar diagnosis. And that's one thing that's going on. It's a market expansion story. The other thing that is going on, and I think you mentioned this, this before the, the break, is if you look at the people today that end up with a bipolar diagnosis, so often they have exposure to other psychotropic drugs before that diagnosis, both illicit and licit. So you'll see a lot of people that come into the bipolar camp, well, maybe they've been doing a lot of marijuana, smoking a lot of marijuana, maybe they've been doing cocaine, hallucinogens, etc. So you can see how those drugs may sort of destabilize uh, the brain's ability to maintain its moods in a steady way. So you'll see that as one pathway. You also will see a lot of people end up in the bipolar camp who initially had a diagnosis of depression, um, and they're put on an antidepressant, and then basically they have a manic response to that. In fact, there was a survey of a major bipolar support group. It's called uh, DBSA, I think it is. And 60% of the people in that group with a bipolar diagnosis were initially diagnosed with um, depression only, and they had their first manic episode after being put on an antidepressant. And I think we have to really recognize this iatrogenic pathway, too. So really two pathways in terms of why we're seeing this extraordinary rise. A, we have a market expansion thing going on, driven by corporate interests, and we do have these other chemical pathways as well. And when you talk about, oh, we're decreasing the stigma, we're getting treatment to people who didn't before get that, well, there may be a little bit of truth to getting expanded treatment to people before who used to suffer in silence, but that's also part of the marketing story that's being put out there. This is this advance in care, but it's really part of expanding the market for drugs, putting an explanation on it. And then going, uh, did you mention bipolar in kids, or am I jumping ahead? <laughs> no, I, I, did, I did mention bipolar um, disorder in kids, but I want to say, you know, in your prologue of your book, or the, um, I think it's the prologue, you talk about how you came to this field, and you weren't always a naysayer trying to slam the psychiatry profession. Oh, no. Yeah, can I, can I talk about that? Yeah, I think you should. I think this is really important. So my background is as a medical, as a, as a daily journalist, a medical reporter. And by the way, I don't think I'm slamming the profession, even in this book. I'm trying to hopefully shed some light and, uh, you know, bring to light some information that sometimes isn't seen. I mean, I think we do have a problem with sort of corporate-driven psychiatry. But anyway, my background is as a newspaper reporter for a long time. I absolutely believe the chemical imbalance story. Uh, I can remember writing stories uh, when I was a staff writer at the Albany Times Union about the benefits of screening for depression. I wrote stories about chemical imbalances, that this was being discovered that depression is caused by low serotonin and that the drug helps fix that. And in fact, in terms of starting to write books about this, this all arose from a series I did for, I co-wrote for the Boston Globe. And one of the things we wrote about it, and it had to do with sort of abuses of patients in psychiatric research settings, that series did. But one of the things we wrote about was how awful it would be to ever take schizophrenia patients off antipsychotic medications. And the framework for that was, our understanding was that antipsychotics were like insulin for diabetes. You would never take uh, a diabetic off of insulin, so we didn't understand how there could ever be studies where you would take people with schizophrenia off those drugs. So. 
my point of this is I have a long background of sort of reporting on mainstream medicine. I was even one time the director of publications at Harvard Medical School. And I believe very much in evidence-based medicine. I believed in the mythology that, uh, you know, that I believed in the common wisdom that there had been this great psychopharmacological revolution and the secrets of, of mental illness have, were being discovered. So absolutely, I was very much a, um, a purveyor or a translator or a scribe that told of this great revolution in psychiatric care. Right, and it was through some of your research for some of your publications that you began to ask questions um, about the chemical imbalance um, hypothesis and about the changing disability numbers and finding that the experts who should be able to give you straightforward answers were not able to, um, partly because they were um, perhaps so involved in their own dogma um, that they couldn't see alternatives and challenge that. Yeah, this is really, you know, one of the things that is fascinating is, um, well, first of all, yeah, going back to the chemical imbalance and, and, and my entry into this, there was a, my entry into this whole thing about writing what you might say critically came when I came upon a World Health Organization study mm-hmm. done twice that found that outcomes in, for schizophrenia patients were much better for in three poor countries of the world, India, Nigeria, and Colombia, than in the U.S. and other rich countries. And I said, why would that be? I mean, you know, we're so proud of our care in Western circles. We have these new atypical antipsychotics. Why would we have worse outcomes? And I went and interviewed a bunch of uh, experts about that, and frankly, uh, they didn't seem to be able to give good answers to it. It was always, oh, the families are nicer in the poor countries. And then I came upon this one fact that really started my questioning, and it was that in the poor countries of the world, specifically India and Nigeria, they were using antipsychotic medications in a very different way. Um, they were only keeping a small minority of their patients regularly on the drugs, about 16%, where, of course, continual drug usage is the paradigm of the standard of care in the U.S. and other rich countries. So this belied everything I knew and had been told about, uh, you know, antipsychotics, which is that people with schizophrenia necessarily need to be on them for lives, these drugs for lives. And that started this questioning of the official wisdom. And going back to what also you're just saying, one of my frustrations initially as a reporter was even when I would interview people who were doing critical research, who sort of had come up with findings that belied the, the, the common wisdom, they always tried to put it, in a, in, they spin their own results a bit to fit it into the accepted wisdom and that the drugs are necessarily good and they should be on, people should be on them for lives wisdom. Um, so at some point in my reporting, I really started turning to, well, what does the research literature say? What did they report in their own studies? And, and do those studies, as you begin to go through that scientific literature and find out what the findings are and look at long terms, do they cohere into a coherent whole that tells a story a nuanced story, somewhat different than the common mythology. And one last thing here, uh, Mark, that I think is important. One of the things I try to do in anatomy of an epidemic is look at why do well-meaning psychiatrists have such faith in these medications? What what is what do they see clinically, and what does their the certain limited evidence base tell them about the effects of the drugs? So I don't think uh, you know. In, in other words, it's not an anti-psychiatry stance at all. It's a a sense of let's try to understand where our beliefs arise from and then also try to understand where maybe some of the blindness comes from, where they don't see these long-term effects. Now, I've got to say, I I did not experience your book as an anti-psychiatry polemic at all. Um, I thought it was very thoughtful. 
Um, it felt very wise and balanced, and you made repeated efforts to um, question your logic and offer um, alternatives and see whether they stood up. I thought it was a very um, sophisticated challenge, which made it harder for me to reject. Um, so, yeah, I don't see it as an anti-psychiatry. In fact, I think that answering some of the questions that you raise will enrich the future of psychiatry. I think so. <laughs> Stir discussion. Let's come back in uh, a moment. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. At last, a radio program dedicated to helping women look fabulous and feel fabulous naturally. You'll pick up tips on natural detox, learn about the benefits of whole foods, practice stress and relaxation techniques, and learn more about health, relationships, remedies, and self-motivation. Tune in to Feel and Look Fabulous with Arena. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We promise you, it's women's time well spent. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mary. No, this is Mark Green. I'm uh, standing in for Mary, and um, we're lucky to have Bob Whitaker, author of Anatomy of an Epidemic. Okay, so Bob, a cornerstone of what you talk about in your book is 
this chemical imbalance story that we've sold, uh, that we've been sold, and we, that so much of the establishment of psychiatry and society in general is invested in. Um, what is this? What is this chemical imbalance story? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, I think this is really important for our society to understand and come to grips with because I think if we did, we might uh, start thinking about psychiatric disorders in a different way and even how best to use the medications. The chemical imbalance story arises really as a hypothesis in the 1960s, and it arises out of an understanding of how the new drugs, I'm talking about the new antipsychotics that are introduced and the new antidepressants, how they act on the brain. So, for example, it's discovered in the 60s that antipsychotics work by blocking dopamine receptors in the brain. 60s, early 70s is when it starts coming forth. And the idea is that if the antipsychotics block dopamine receptors in the, in the brain, and dopamine is a neurotransmitter, a chemical messenger, in other words, it's lowering dopaminergic activity, well, then the, the hypothesis is that well, maybe schizophrenia is caused by too much dopamine. And what's really going on here, you have to sort of understand where we are in medical history, is that we get the magic bullets with, um, with penicillin. So penicillin kills uh, you know, bacterial infections, and we have this sort of neat model where something comes out and fixes something else, kills something else. It's a very sort of reductionist model. The insulin for diabetes model, same sort of thing. You have this sense in infectious medicine, diabetes is caused by, you know, a problem with insulin, a reduction in insulin, and therefore you, you supply that and you fix that problem. And so now psychiatry in the 60s, when it gets its new drugs, is trying to have the same sort of simplistic model for understanding its disorders. And it arises, however, out of an understanding how the drugs work. Same thing. At some point they understand that antidepressants, for example, block the normal reuptake of serotonin, say, was also with norepinephrine, but let's focus on serotonin. Block the uh, reuptake of serotonin, keeping serotonin in the, in the uh, synaptic cleft longer, upping serotonergic activity, therefore depression may be caused by low serotonin. Now, they investigate this in the 1970s, 1980s, and let's stick with the antipsychotics. The idea is that uh, people with schizophrenia have too much dopaminergic activity. The way they investigate that is they look, uh, what happens is dopamine in the brain is sometimes metabolized by an enzyme. Those metabolites show up in the cerebral spinal fluid. So the researchers looked for levels of those metabolites in the cerebral spinal fluid. The thought was compared to normals, those people with schizophrenia would have higher than normal levels. And what they found out, it wasn't so. Prior to being medicated, they did not have, as a group, higher than level uh, amounts of metabolites in the cerebral spinal fluid. By the way, they would be quite variable. It's not like a temperature where everyone's at 98.6. There would be this variability of metabolite levels in schizophrenia patients, and when they looked at, quote, normals, there would be a similar variability. Now, they did the same type of research with depressed patients and same sort of thing. They would see this variability in serotonin metabolite levels in depressed patients, and they would see this variability in, quote, normals as well. And those uh, bell curves didn't differ that much. So really they saw that low serotonin wasn't a distinguishing feature of schizophrenia. And they also looked at this, and let's stick with, now go to the antidepressants for a second. So now you have a new drug, let's say Prozac, or a drug that blocks the reuptake of serotonin, and the idea is, well, at least those who have low levels of metabolites will be the best responders to that drug. So at least we have a subgroup that suffer from a chemical imbalance, low serotonin, that is then fixed by the drug. But when they ran studies and did metabolite tests prior to the study, they found that those people with high serotonin levels were just as likely to respond to the serotonin, the, the drug, as those with, quote, 
low levels of metabolites in their cerebrospinal fluid. So there wasn't even this association as well. So the important thing of this is, bottom line is, the hypothesis arose from not understanding what was going on biologically in people so diagnosed, but by understanding the drugs. And then when they investigated the chemical imbalance theory, they found it not to be so. In other words, the biological causes of depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, they remain unknown. This doesn't mean we are that when you say that, oh, you're not saying that it's not biological in kind or there's not biological factors. You're just saying science hasn't discovered that biology. That's right. Uh, and that's a very key thing because people say, oh, you think it's just psychological. No, I don't know that. I'm just saying it's not known. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. But then the other part of this that you have to say is, well, if the drugs aren't fixing a chemical imbalance, what are they doing? And what they found is, of course, is that they, they do act on neurotransmitter systems. They sort of perturb a system, going back to the antipsychotics. They block, for example, dopamine receptors in the brain. And then the brain, being this extraordinarily plastic organ, tries to respond or compensate for that the presence of the drug. So how do they respond to antipsychotics? Well, the drug blocks the uh, dopamine receptors, sort of diminishing dopaminergic activity, and the brain says, uh-oh, that's a problem. And it increases its number of the, the dopamine receptors. So in fact, someone who's on an antipsychotic for a while may have had no sort of abnormal density of dopamine receptors prior to drug exposure, but they will after they've been on the drug. Now, that may be good, that may be bad, but it's just a different paradigm for understanding how drugs work on the brain. And, and, and Steve Hyman, who today is a provost at Harvard University, he's a neuroscientist. He also is a former head of the NIMH. And while head of the NIMH, he wrote this extremely important paper. It was called A Paradigm for Understanding Psychotropic Drug Action. And what he said is, listen, here's how these drugs work. They perturb uh, neurotransmitter systems in the brain. In response to that perturbation, the brain undergoes compensatory adaptations, a little bit of what I just talked about. And at the end of that, the brain is operating in a manner that is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than normal. Now, that may be good. That may be bad. It's just not a normalizing paradigm. And I think why this is so important is if we understand that we don't know the biological causes, and we do understand that the medications are perturbing these systems, and the brain tries to compensate to that perturbation. If you conceive of the drugs that way, you say, wow, these drugs probably should be used in a pretty cautious manner, a selective manner, and also you might want to have a lot of um, thought about how this, per this, this change might affect people over the long term. So it, I think good medicine arises out of sort of an honest evaluation of how your treatments do affect, say, the brain or the organ. And I, I think we really need a societal change in our understanding. Yeah, and I think the simplicity of, say, the dopamine hypothesis or the serotonin hypothesis for depression was extremely compelling for society and certainly for um, psychiatry and um, provided a, a model by which people could say, this is why I'm ill, and this is why this medication is going to do well. And it, and it would not surprise me whether the efficacy of the medication improved with that kind of suggestibility. One of the factors, actually, um, which can appear to be useful to predict the efficacy of an antidepressant is the opioid system, um, which has not really been studied for the treatment of depression, but has been tried to study for the treatment for the response to placebo, 
and those who respond to placebos more effectively also respond profoundly better to antidepressants. And of course, in long-term, longer, larger trials, and for any medication efficacy trials, you try to do even better than that. You try to get some um, effect better than the placebo. But there's certainly um, some many other receptors systems involved interacting with the environment, interacting with family, communication, um, which must come into play here. And one of the downsides of such a simplistic model, say the dopamine or serotonin model, is that you stymie your ability to think creatively about other drug development, about interaction with other systems, um, about the interaction between medication and the environment, and you rely on an overly simplistic model, which just means you keep changing medications, and people end up feeling, feeling that they just have to search for, as you talk about, the magic bullet, um, which is going to make things better. Yeah, you know, I think this is a great point and really goes to, again, if you look at historically, we, we as a society did come to believe in magic bullets, right? And that was this nice, neat model of, and it does arrive from internal medicine. Unfortunately, and you can speak to this better than I can, you know, the brain is extraordinarily complex. I mean, extraordinarily, extraordinarily complex. As you say, these drugs actually affect a lot of neurotransmitters. There's feedback loops for the transmitters. And we are also creatures, of course, that respond to our environment in emotional ways, um, in very, very, you know, very, very many ways. Um, and the, the simplistic sense, I think, served to put blinders on the field and maybe society as a whole to this complexity. Um, and, and as you say, I think if you want to sort of go forward, if you can see the whole person as they come to you with, you know, maybe immediate problems, stresses and all, past problems, and then you, and if you see that larger personality and that larger sense of the complexity of the brain, and as you say, even drug development, maybe on other systems, you can sort of see drugs maybe as you know, not the answer, not the magic bullet, but how do we use them as a crutch or in the best way, if that makes sense, as part of a larger strategy of care? Yeah, I think that's right. So there's been an over-reliance on medications, and the WHO study, a fairly important study from the 80s, and repeated, as you said, in the 90s, showing um, improved rates of recovery in um, the third world, developing world, as well as the incredibly compelling stories of um, people who are, in their own recovery from mental illness and have often come off medications on the sly, surreptitiously, to avoid the wrath of their psychiatrist who's inherent to um, a chemical imbalance idea um, and thinks that this is insulin for the person's mental illness. Um, they have very compelling stories um, of remarkable recoveries and growth um, without the use of medications or once they've come off of their medication. Um, and the, there's a balance to be struck because certainly I see marvelous things that medications permit or facilitate. Um, and you're not um, stirring out the baby with the bathwater um, when you say um, that let's look a bit more critically about what's going on with the medications and think about their the limits to how they can be used um, and what else we need to do to ensure someone's overall recovery and a broader view of what brings them to their discomfort in, their point in, in that point in their life. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly what I, the sort of the discussion I would hope this book would promote. 
Well, let's come back after a short break for our last segment. Options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart, but I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. It's Mark Green um, with Bob Whitaker. Uh, everyone should read this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. It's great. Lots to think about. Um, and your website, too, um, Bob, uh, which is madinamerica.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That also has some very useful resources pages um, where you um, have the many pertinent studies online um, so that readers can critically review the source data themselves, which, is, which, is very, which, is, which was very helpful. Right. I mean, I did that for a purpose, so people could not just see who I was citing in the back of the book, but they could then go, if a, you know, and read the study itself. So, 
towards the end of the book, you talk about some alternatives, and you especially talk about open dialogues um, and um, Soteria House projects. Now, um, I haven't had anyone uh, uh, talk about Soteria here, um, but um, I have had uh, Mary Olson talk about open dialogues in a previous show. Um, people should uh, look up op um, the open dialogues approach show that I did with Mary um, to hear about those important studies in Finland where um, through a immediate outreach approach of a treatment team which includes family um, and the identified patient um, and using this process of um, allowing the frustrations in the family system to be expressed um, stabilize um, extreme states quite quickly and with a very marked reduction of antipsychotic use. Um, that roughly no, that was a good description. I think that's a better description than I could have done. I, I just say that the, the interesting thing for me with the Open Dialogue program in northern Finland in western Lapland is it did arise out of, of uh, you know, basically a, a large national Finnish um, study on schizophrenia outcomes that compared uh, sort of psychotherapeutic approaches, including open dialogue, with and without sort of sort of with standard use of antipsychotics in which everybody was initially put on the drugs and also there was a group that they would try to defer use of antipsychotics and see if some people could get better with just the sort of family outreach you talked about and they found that they could and so they eventually came to the conclusion that sort of selective use of the medications would lead to the best long-term outcomes so what I really loved about there was that there was this research process this evidence-based research process that ultimately led this group in northern Finland to use antipsychotics in this very sort of thoughtful, artful way as part of a larger program. So, um, so it is a really artful program and very encouraging results and does question some of the um, very limited data around um, getting people onto medications very early in, their, in the course of their illness and keeping them on for a long time, this untreated, um, duration of untreated illness. But that's a, a separate issue perhaps could you say in a few sentences a little bit about the Soteria work and, and uh, houses um, like that for the treatment of psychotic states? Sure. Um, the Soteria project was really a pro uh, uh, an experiment conducted in the 1970s. It was led by Lauren Mosher, who at the time was the head of the schizophrenia section at the National Institute of Mental Health. And, and I think you put your finger on a key thing here is sort of initial delay of use of antipsychotics. So what the Soteria project was... They had this home, and they would take newly psychotic patients, and the home would be staffed not actually by professionals, but by people who were just comfortable uh, being around people in, in extreme states, so they weren't frightened by them. And the idea was that by providing a comforting environment, a nurturing environment in this home, that people would enter, they'd be in maybe an extreme state, hallucinating, whatever it might be, extremely paranoid, and then they wouldn't initially put them on antipsychotics, and maybe the psychosis would begin to abate on its own. And if that happened, therefore this person would sort of have a descent into psychosis and with enough time would recover and then would not be, have all the sort of problems that arise with continual antipsychotic use, long-term antipsychotic use. And what they found in the 70s with the Soteria home was that, indeed, at least more, probably more than 50%, in fact, could descend into psychosis and giving this sort of nurturing environment get better and not need to be on the medications long term. So there was like an escape valve. And that really was the message, I think, partly here was that 
there was a large group of patients that could be psychotic, diagnosed with early schizophrenia, and in fact get better and recover if they weren't put down this continually medicated path. Now, even in Soteria Project, they had a same thing was uh, that if a person wasn't better after three or four weeks, if the psychosis wasn't abating, they'd put them on the antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. So it was just delaying the sense and seeing if there could be some sort of natural recovery. And that and that shows up, I think, in research forums, venues of many different types, that if you can delay immediate use of antipsychotics, and I think there's some merit to this and some other um, diagnoses as well, you, you, you might have a, a sizable percentage of people that have the symptom, have the diagnosis, have a bad time, and then get better, and they leave the diagnosis behind. They leave the problem behind. And just real quickly, there is a, a satiria home that has now opened in Anchorage with some government funding with, uh, from the, the, the state funding, in essence, um, to trying to replicate what was done in the 1970s under Lauren Mosher. They have this home. They're trying to treat young patients in particular, 18, 19, 20. And I just had an email from the uh, governing psychiatrist, and he says, yeah, we're getting really good results. We're starting to duplicate the results seen in the Soteria House in the 1970s. And literally, anecdotally, what's happening is some of these young kids, early on in their, quote, you know, the course of this illness are getting off antipsychotics, going back to work, going back to school, and really re-engaging in life. So I think that's a really encouraging therapeutic possibility. It's very, very encouraging. One, one criticism I had of your book was that um, I don't think you have to go all the way to Alaska or to um, Finland to find some alternatives, sophisticated alternatives. So, um, say, Westbridge, in collaboration with Dartmouth Hitchcock, has, has really worked on high fidelity to evidence-based practices, including side-by-side assertive care management, supported employment, um, peer mentorship, um, cognitive behavioral therapies for a range of um, disorders, family therapies. Um, And we work with people who um, are at all stages of insight into their illness and willingness to take medications. Many of them don't want to take medications, and because we're based on uh, based around respect for people's autonomy and decision-making and um, helping them make some decisions which are moving forward in their recovery, we can respect that. Um, and often people do get better and are able to be on either no or very low-dose medications. Um, it's not necessarily the stance I'll take from the get-go. Um, I, 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 it still worries me. Um, because the dominant discourse, discourse in psychiatry is you should be on medication and untreated psychosis is, is stressful and um, damages your life in many, and perhaps damages you know, the brain. Um, so it's difficult as a um, psychiatrist sometimes to withhold, feel that you're withholding a medication, which, which the majority of psychiatrists would say you've got to do. But coming from the perspective of wellness of patients over their long term, and the respect for their autonomy um, enables you to make some collaborative decisions which really can help increase their functioning along with these other evidence-based factors. So there's a lot going on in this country too. Yeah, well, you know, that sounds like a great model of care and I'm sorry I missed it actually. I wish I would have reported on it. Hey, um, sorry that we've come to the end of our hour. It's been great talking with you. Um, Mad in America um, and Anatomy of an Epidemic. Robert Whitaker, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.